Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jake Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner, and we are here to herald the arrival of his silent majesty, King Blackagar Boltagon. Excelsior. I am one of those people who loves that his name is Blackagar Boltagon. That's one of my favorite stupid things in the stupid history of stupid comics. I, I love it. I love it so much. I think I have professed my love for this many times, uh, especially every time I got to talk about the excellent Black Bolt series by uh, Saladin Ahmed and Christian Ward. Yes, that is a recent favorite of mine in the last couple of years. Um, so good. At- but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because that <laughs> doesn't come out for years. We are here to talk about the sprawling epic run of Marvel Comics that I like to call the Annihilation Saga. Although... Yes. We've kind of left Annihilation in, in, in the rearview mirror. We are well past Annihilation now. Yeah, we're well past Annihilation. We're well past Annihilation Conquest. I don't think there are any more things titled Annihilation in this run, uh, as far as I'm aware. No, not for many years after this run. Um, yeah. And even then, it's like dubiously connected. Oh, I guess there is the <laughs> Annihilators, but that, that's, after, that's just after where we're going to stop. Okay. I think that... I think we can safely say, nah, we don't need to deal with that. Um, but just to bring listeners up to speed, if uh, maybe it's been a little bit and you uh, want to uh, feel we're, we're at in the Marvel Universe, we started by reading Annihilation, which was a big event comic from 2006-2007, uh, where all the Marvel space heroes fought in a big war against some invading bugs from another dimension. Would, would you call it an event comic? I don't um, know. It... Yeah, I mean, that's a great nitpick right off the start, huh? It's like, uh, it's definitely got the size and scope of one, but it's not really crossing over existing series, but it was like making up new series out of whole cloth. I don't know. I like that kind of structure for a big Marvel series, and I thought that one earned it. I think it's a, it handled it a lot better, and I would prefer more stuff like Inva- uh, Invasion, like Annihilation, than Civil War. Yeah, absolutely. And we will be talking a little bit about Civil War later in today's episode, which I am excited about. Oh, yes, about. we will. Um, and um, after the Annihilation War, which brought a lot of our space heroes together, um, the galaxy was once again threatened, this time by the Phalanx Conquest, which was a bunch of robots from a robot part of the galaxy trying to turn everyone else into robots. Only it turned out that they were being egged on to do that by Ultron, which I thought was a fun twist. And As you do. A bunch of superheroes got together to fight Ultron and his robot army, and that ended up being the team that is now called the Guardians of the Galaxy. And and once again, there's a a war of Bruin. This is going to be the War of Kings that we're headed towards, but we're not quite there yet. And we are following the adventures of the Guardians of what they're doing um, in their not-so-quiet months between these two giant space wars. Yeah, it's... It is a quiet, fallow time, but uh, we have the dubious honor of having this take place during Secret Invasion. So everyone's very concerned with Secret Invasion. Yeah, and Secret Invasion is such a weird one. We talked about it at great length in the last episode. Yeah. But um, what's so weird to me about Secret Invasion is every adaptation I've seen of Secret Invasion I love, but the original story is terrible. It's real bad. There's a great rendition of it in the uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon. Oh, yeah. That one was done excellently. That's where I was first introduced to, to Secret Invasion as a concept. I think it helped that, you know, they had the time to set it up, which apparently Bendis didn't do. I, not for lack <laughs> of time, I would, uh, 
I would imagine. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we're, like, in the middle of the Guardians of the Galaxy run now. This is the run that will eventually inspire the movie, and I am really interested in tracking the differences between this comic and the movie, and in this episode, that's going to be, like, one of my favorite exercises, because this is right where they start to really blur. Yeah, and it—but at the beginning— and we'll get into this a little bit. The team really doesn't look the same. It looks completely different. Yeah. Uh, for reasons which, well, we saw last time, I, Peter Quill had Mantis kind of nudge everyone to accept the team stuff, and everyone was like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> yeah, that was in the um, at the end of issue six of Guardians of the Galaxy, and today we are going to be discussing the events of Guardians of the Galaxies number uh, seven to twelve, written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, uh, illustrated by Paul Pelletier, Brad Walker, Carlos Magno, and Wes Craig, inked by Rick Magyar, Victor Olazaba, Jack Purcell, Livesay, uh, Rodney Ramos. And Wes Craig, colored by Will Quintana with Bruno Hang, and lettered by uh, VCs Joe Caramanga. That's a lot of cr- uh, credits for just a couple of issues. Yeah, I couldn't tell you exactly where each artist did the art. Like, I can sort of guess which issues are which, but just looking at it, I'm like, I throw my hands up in the air. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know who did what. Yeah, I mean, um, there's the West Craig. The last two issues are the West Craig issues, and those feel pretty different from the others. Um, yeah. But everything's following like a pretty of this era house style. Uh, Paul Pelletier has done most of the issues so far, and the the lion's share of them. So I think he's the one really setting the pace of the style. Uh, but I really like Brad Walker's issues. Um, I also uh, when these issues were coming out, the 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 later part in this run i was working at a comic shop and brad walker was actually one of my customers and one of the few uh or the not the few the first uh comics people that i had the pleasure of meeting and oh, wow. um and that made me really uh you know because i wanted to impress him and be friendly uh <laughs> like double down on like really looking at his art and coming up with intelligent stuff to say about it so i got really used to uh looking closely at brad walker art in those years he does a very good art doesn't always have the best writer accompanying him but <laughs> Um, well, he's got two writers in this case, Abnett and Lanning, who uh, went from doing some of the funny supporting issues to being like the main guys who are doing every issue. Mm-hmm. And it's they're building a lot. These issues feel that they're very set dressingy, not set dressing. Uh, they're setting the stage for a lot of stuff to come. For it feels like. It really feels like a bunch of interstitial issues, which doesn't mean that the adventures within them aren't fun, but I got the feeling that this was not, you know, developing something in the same way that the Nova issues kind of were, in fact, moving stuff forward almost the entire time. Um, This one isn't doing that as much. It's more we're cutting back between people and like the important things are going to be coming in a few issues or something. Yeah, although um, I I love the pacing of these issues. This reminds me a lot of um, like Claremont X Men stuff, where so you made the team, but by the end of the first arc, the team broke up, right? And they went their disparate ways. Yeah. And now a bunch of them are dealing with uh, their own plots for like uh, Drax and Gamora. Sorry, not Drax and uh, Gamora and um, and Adam Warlock 
are off dealing with the Universal Church of Truth, and that's kind of like its own simmering plotline. But when when that uh, pops off, who are they going to need? The Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh yeah, they it's, totally it's, will. But it's it's like pretty clear that it, everyone went in their own separate directions to um to build a couple of discrete arcs. Uh, yeah. And I, I guess I'll um, I'll take note of that as we pass by. But we start with um, the original Guardians of the Galaxy, the nineteen sixty nine team. Elias, do you have uh, any any uh, familiarity no. or? No, I know <laughs> J- Jack Diddley about them. Uh, they made a cameo at the end of the second movie, uh, like with Sylvester Stallone, and obviously here Yondu is a teammate team member there and he got transplanted into the past for the movie and now in the now in the marvel universe there are two yondus because why not uh one of them is the uh the the one on this guardians of the galaxy team in the 31st century is the descendant of like the redneck yondu who we now know and love yeah and there there was a miniseries recently where they met and had time shenanigans as you do as you do yeah why not if you have uh, two versions of yourself and sylvester stallone in the movie was supposed to be starhawk seriously yeah that was Starhawk. why didn't they Isn't... give him a stupid costume i i guess when you get sylvester stallone for five minutes and you're paying him 65 million dollars uh that's not enough for him to put on the starhawk costume i guess maybe um, they just wanted to avoid a lot of that uh I don't know if we're ever going to see those guys again. But yeah, so the the Ravagers in the MCU is now supposed to kind of allude to this 31st century team of Guardians. But now, I really like how the comic handles this because we're touching down, we're touching in with the 31st century Guardians. I never knew these characters before this issue right here. Like, this is the first time I'm ever meeting them. And I'm guessing that's more or less the same for you? Yeah, that's pretty much the same thing. And uh, these early pages do like a decent job at we you, we see their powers and what their deal is um, as briefly as you can do such a thing. But what they're setting up here for the long run is that the this is a huge retcon where the 31st century guardians are um, like named for and uh, trying to honor the legacy of this Peter Quill team that we're now following, even though that comic was written later. And even though they were inspired by the name of the future guardians via the advanced... victory coming back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It gets time extreme... travel. Don't think about it. Love time travel. Don't think about it. Um, but the important thread that they set up here is that uh, in the classic guardians comics, uh, there's a race, of lizard guys called the Badoon and they've taken over like 90% of the galaxy. But in the current Marvel universe, the Badoon are like, not really an organized threat to anybody else. And so this becomes one of those like classic X-Men days of future past. You have to avert the bad future things. Mm-hmm. I was wondering why, why Abnan landing and also um, Keith Giffen kept mentioning the Badoon. I know they're an important spacefaring race with a funny name, but I wondered why they kept singling out the Badoon as like one of the other important like they didn't really mention the Shi'ar all that much and the Shi'ar are very important in the in the Marvel universe there was, was like Kree, Skrull, Badoon those were the names that we I kept hearing in <laughs> those Annihilation and Conquest issues and early Guardians and Nova stuff and I guess this is why 
Yeah, it's all foreshadowing for this. It's kind of like in X-Men where um, the Sentinels are one day going to give way to Nimrod and uh, the second Nimrod gets created, that's how you know we're like moving towards the bad future. The second the Bad yep. Dunes start taking worlds, that's how we know we're getting to the bad future of these Guardians of the Galaxy comics. Yeah. And we're not really paying off yet the uh, the future is broken, how do we fix it? quite yet like that still seems like a ways away so yeah th I, that's the simmering that's but we have starhawk yeah. is uh stuck right that we keep on checking in with the uh, cosmo is interrogating starhawk who came back from the future yeah and keeps but, changing biological sex and turning into different versions of themselves different ages yeah um the, but we keep going between that and then a, a battle with just some of horrifying, horrifying things. Yeah. You know, that's Warhammer shit. Yeah, these Badoon uh, Zom warriors. They're, they're just fa faces on metal. It's horrifying. <laughs> um. Yeah, and they're doing battle with this, like, new lineup of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, the team is now being led by Rocket Raccoon, which is a big change of pace. And uh, he is joined by Mantis and Major Victory, who had kind of, like, fought with them but not officially thrown in. Um, mm -hmm. A now fully grown and back-in-action Groot and Bug, who I know you missed from Conquest. I did. I was wondering when he was going to show up, and they even lampshade it being like, well, he wasn't asked, and he's a little bit salty about that. That's a great, like, first axe for him to grind. It's just He's just like, what up, the second string guardians? This isn't fair. <laughs> um, this is also where we are now in, like, full I am Groot mode. Yeah, which I, I still don't get that. I, I don't get the purpose of it. Everyone Why loves it is the purpose of it. it. I guess. I, I guess Giffen and then Abnett Lanning had two very different ideas about Groot because Giffen's was very eloquent, mm -hmm. but Abnett Lanning, I don't think, ever wrote an eloquent Groot. They wrote, I am Groot with, you know, small Hulkisms. Yeah, but they, by the end of this arc, they're already doing fun jokes with the I am Groot thing. And uh, by the end of War of Kings, it's like officially that's his shtick. Is he can okay. only say I am Groot and it means a bunch of different. But like, um, there's a moment in the battle where um, Mantis predicts that their their fate's gonna change based on the the utterance of three words, and everyone guesses the three words, and then Groot I am Groot's and pops out of nowhere and saves everybody. Great moment. Great moment. I'm still, and that's I'm still like the a first fan of the I am Groot. I am help. See Groot help. <laughs> Yeah, they're just, but they're finding like all these like fun little gags with the I am Groot thing, and they're right. Do you remember Groot? Like, do you remember how hard we all went for Groot after Guardians of the Galaxy one? Everyone bought a baby Groot. Everyone loved Groot. Yeah, and um, everyone still loves Groot, but yeah, but people were crazy for Groot. Yeah, and um, the easiest paycheck Vin Diesel ever had after his uh, Fast and Furious just got boiled down to it's about family. Oh, if you think that's an easy paycheck, my friend, we have to watch uh, his monologue in Fast and Furious 5. <laughs> for which I believe he won all the Oscars? Uh, even even the Tony? <laughs> the Tony was uh, the only Oscar they refused to give him. <laughs> they gave him the Tony for Furious 7, which, as we all agree, is the masterpiece of the series. Um, 
Anyway, the we're we're sticking with the guardians uh, as they're battling this rising Badoon threat, and we're also uh, checking in throughout the story with Gamora and Warlock, who are battling the forces of the Universal Church of Truth. Uh, Gamora has uh, mostly recovered from the horrific burns she got in the last arc, but now she has like a cute new haircut, and she's rocking the cape, and she's rocking the cape. I love this cape. Obviously, it's a great uh, cape. Th- 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 this costume is. Um, <laughs> it's not my favorite for a couple of reasons. Nor well, have they I have to give multiple gratuitous ass shots. I'm looking at a panel and the cape is fluttering just above ass level. I'm like, you didn't need to do that. You didn't need to do that. I don't. I almost never like Gamora costumes. I don't like the biker look. I don't like the Mass Effect costume that she had for a couple years. The movie look is okay, but it's not that great either. The thing that they all need is they need this cape. Gamora looks great with a cape. Yep, and I mean. Philavel also has a cape. Great cape. Yeah, also a great cape. I find the um of these storylines, I love the the main guardians team. I think that's a they have a fun dynamic. I like watching them banter. Groot steals the show. And mm-hmm. um I think the Philo Drax stuff is actually really compelling as well, but um the Warlock Gamora stuff definitely is the the weak link of this arc kind of just happening to get us to wherever this is going. Yeah, I don't think Admin and Lanning really, they don't develop anything in it. It's just, they're kind of there. Everything we learn in that, in these six issues with Gamora and Warlock, we already knew. We, we learned nothing new. And th- that, I think, was, was my, oh, we're just kind of, like, not doing anything. Because I just kept thinking of Gamora and Warlock doing nothing. They do it cool, but they don't really do anything. Uh, and... They confront the Universal Church of Truth. The Universal Church of Truth... I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but... Nothing happens with them. Right. I see the cocoon again, and we get more... But who's the false one? We get no resolution. No, not in their story, at least. The one thing... There's a a couple of passing mentions about their relationship and their their past together, and I wish we had done more with that. I, it, it's kind of what we just did with Gamora with her and Nova's relationship, but if she's going to be paired up with Adam Warlock and they're going to have sort of romantic tension, like, let's fully get into that. That's, like, a fun thing for her to chew on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, much more interesting to me is I really actually like Drax and Phyla as a pair, as I have since this started, because I like the weird, um, he was a failure of a father and he really sucked, and now he is teamed up with his um, daughter-in-law, after they both lost his daughter. I just, like, I, I think that's kind of a weird, complicated relationship of, like, a, a parental figure and a, a child-in-law brought together by tragedy. Like, I think that's got, like, a real... Yeah, real... and trying to atone post-death in, in, without ever, like, saying that. Because Drax would never admit it. But he's going on this adventure because he's, he's like, oh, I want to find Cammy. Yeah. And then they instantly get derailed when someone mentions Heather. Yeah, instantly get derailed. And I love that. I, I know your feelings about Cammy, which are you'd be happy not to see Cammy again? Yeah, I mean it'd be it'd be good, I think, to follow up because they they kind of threaded that. They were like, Oh, what's gonna happen with Cammy? And I don't I don't really like Cammy. But this would have been an opportunity to kind of have Cammy grow because there's all this time. And you could do that without having to deal with the annoyance in between. Yeah, and we'll, we'll next time we see, just, yeah, 
Next time we see her, she will have grown, but it won't be in this series. Um, and I, I thought that you might uh, just chuckle at how quickly they're like, what? Heather's out there? Cammy who? And they just like, completely yeah. move on. <laughs> That's almost exactly what the soothsayer says. She's like, Cammy, Who's Cammy? I'm talking about Heather. And I'm, they're like, it's um, time. I also, though, I really like the way that even though there's a bunch of different threads, they're all kind of referencing each other. Like, the yeah. soothsayer mentions at different points the um, the war between the future and the past with the future Guardians and Starhawk and how that's all messed up. And uh, also kind of uh, later refers to the War of Kings. I think it starts with the War of the Kings because she's like something, something, silent king, something, something. Yeah. Something. Um, ah, yeah, the the war. Is it about the war between the kings, the error, the doom of the future tense? <laughs> and this great is cryptic shit. Great cryptic shit. And this is also where it starts getting more full-throatedly funny in a way that seems very much to be the MCU. Yeah. Like, this is the proto-MCU style. Um, but I'm really liking it here. I think that, um, like, uh, Drax's gruff tough guy shtick is pretty funny. And... Um, the rocket bickering with his crew and trying to lead them is pretty funny. Yeah, and he's trying. He's also... Uh, is it just him and Major V? No. We don't get a lot of those cutaways, which makes me a little sad. I like not as many. Cutaways. Not I as mean, many, but it's still... Um, it's still still there. The first issue has a lot of it. Issue 7. Right, part of it is that uh, we do two kind of uh, more focused issues, and it's less about the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the first issue ends with uh, we finally check in with Star-Lord. And we don't know how he found himself in this predicament, but he's like falling, falling, falling. And then he lands he's on this— chained up. He crashes, and then we get this two-page spread where he's just like, fuck, Blastar? King Blastar, if you please. Welcome to the negative zone. Issue ends. Elias, can you imagine my reaction to that uh, page turn reveal of my main man, Blastar? I love Blastar. And I see this is where he gets his uh, chump attitude of being (laughs) the king of the negative zone without ever really earning it. Right. So, well, Quill even needles him about this. We we find out in the next issue that um, Blastar uh, signed a treaty with Ronan the Accuser, and he's kind of a uh, client king. But nobody in the negative zone is—they're all like a—it's it, mostly—it's like a, this Conan the Barbarian world. Nobody cares about how he got there, and he's just calling himself king, and nobody's questioning it. Yeah. And, and I mean, he, he fights, and he reclaims his power by just beating up people. And then he— I love the little speech he gives after beating some guy up. It's so... It's just so ridiculous. He's got, like, nothing... He, he talks like he's got nothing left to prove. He's just got this perfect confidence of, now that Annihilus is out of the way, he's the toughest guy in the negative zone. Yeah. He's... Is Brad Walker doing this issue? Or is um, this still Paul? Cause I it... imagine that somebody different is doing the um, first half and the second half of the issue. The flashback in the present day. Okay, because I don't, because I don't see the trademark uh, chin that I recognize Brad Walker's art for. But if it is, I feel like the like all the the battle with Ronan, it's really clear. Like the action there is excellent. There's so not I were... a lot of extraneous information. It's not overly overdone, and there are some issues here. Where I'm like, okay, this fight is just there's so many 
pointless particle effects and breaking glass. I'm like, I can't really tell. But the action is really good here. Yeah. I, um, there's a couple panels that are very Kirby-inspired uh, with the posing, especially. Yeah. Um, but I actually wrote in my notes that uh, the Star-Lord and Ronan fight, this is the moment for me in this Guardian series. So this is the moment when it all clicks, where... We've been following Ronan and Star-Lord since the beginning of Annihilation, and we know that the, the respect they had for each other and then Conquest happened. These two characters have all this history, and it being a superhero comic, the way this is getting expressed is them having a quick fist fight as they update you on their status quo. Because mm-hmm. that's how we tell stories in superhero comics. Um, exactly. But it, but like you said, it's a great fight. It's really well-drawn. It's really bold and exciting and punchy. Uh, by punchy, I mean uh, quick and delivers the point uh, efficiently. Uh, but also they punch also each other. Punches. Yeah. Um, but it's it's just really cool. Just that um, Blastar is now using the enemy's weapons from the previous war in a way that Star-Lord finds unethical. But Star-Lord is responsible for a lot of the atrocities of the previous war. And Blastar ha- and uh, Ronan hasn't forgiven him. And... And we could just, and I, this is the moment where I'm just like, we could just do this forever. This is like what X makes X-Men good and what makes Spider-Man good. There's just so many characters. They all have such strong motivations and personalities. At, at any moment, you can just like throw J. Jonah Jameson into a story or bring back Norman Osborn or bring in some symbiotes or Morbius, right? Like, like the Spider-Man cast is so sprawling and everything mixes with each other so cool. And this is where I start feeling that with Guardians, where now Ronan can show up. And as we'll see, he shows up in the next story and it, it, he zags when you think he's going to zig. Yeah, but for right now, where they are, we I found it so interesting also that Quill definitely is also objecting to this thing because he feels guilty for bringing it down. I, I don't know how he wants to show that show Ronan that what he's doing is not the right move, but it's also the exact thing that he did unintentionally, but... This is what Quill wanted to do, bring in some some other technology from another another race. Uh, in that case, it was the Space Knights to, you know, augment the Kree. Uh, and Ronan was like, no, this seems bad. I don't like this. But he respects Quill enough. But now she was on the other foot. And Ronan's like, uh, I'm just going to beat him up. And if anyone asks, he was never here. Yeah, I. it's just it's really good ongoing comic stuff. And this is why... <laughs> Like, they, the movie, you know they make the movie on the strength of this run. This is where I start seeing how this could be a movie, how this is like a, or a series of movies. There's just like infinite storytelling potential with these characters in this world. Mm-hmm. And we get some more fighting on, on the Badoon world. And then we get, we get Blastar's whole thing. He wants to invade Earth. Yeah. In conclusion, I find this whole negative zone adventure to be a Blastar. Because you see, my main man Blastar's plans are to invade the Earth. And specifically, this is where we call to a piece of Marvel continuity that I think you might have a particular interest in. And that is uh, Prison 42. Yep. And we touched on this back during the uh, Super Scroll miniseries, actually. During that episode, you made a, a glib reference to... How, you know, whatever Richards is doing is probably never going to come back to to be involved here. And I thought you were just referring to Civil War in general. Uh, but no, we actually deal with Prison 42 as an important plot point. So for those who don't know, Civil War was a garbage event. I will take every opportunity to bash it. 
But part of that, Reed Richards was allowed to be just the worst, and he made a prison in the negative zone for all of the superheroes and supervillains. And it's basically Guantanamo Bay, but held up as like this great, amazing thing because Mark Millar sucks. I don't want to do a personal attack on Mark Millar. His writing is hot garbage and always very kind of fascisty. The themes of his writing are uh, are the most suspect part of his writing. And yeah, that especially is when he's great. like, no, 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 no. The prison was a good thing. People liked the prison, and that's why it stuck around until people were like, why? Um. So, so one thing I love about this story is that this is definitively what becomes of that prison. Oh, really? This is like the last, the last gasp of the prison. Now, I poked around, and I cannot prove that there aren't issues uh, that came out after this that don't refer to the Negative Zone prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are are issues far after this where it's like Blastar's fortress. He has taken over from ah. Prison Forty Two. Um, and I believe uh, we were talking the Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon. They, in fact, do an episode about that. Mm-hmm. Where uh, it's a, it's a Nihilus, not Blastar, but a Nihilus uh, lays siege to the Negative Zone prison. Yeah. Um, that's based on this story. Ah, and I love this development. Uh, the Negative Zone prison, as you mentioned, is like was a terrible fascist idea by Mark Millar. Um, and... It was uh, treated very blasé in the pages of those comics. But here, it's like clearly set up to be a bad idea. There's heroes and villains mixed in, and um, it, it's just a disaster. Like, everyone's abandoned it, and it's it's total chaos inside. Yeah. And it's a great setting for this story. Exactly. And we spend a lot of the, the next couple issues. You know, Star-Lord, he's sent in naked because... You know, Blaster doesn't trust him as far as he can throw him. He doesn't want to give him any any leeway. Sends him in to try and negotiate with the, the people. And specifically, he ends up talking to Jack Flag, who I don't really know much about. But we get a little bit of an intro to him. Uh, and then we get... Oh, what what was his... Well, I can, tell you, I can tell you a thing or two about Jack Flag. So... Jack Flagg is a character from uh, the Mark Grunewald Captain America run in the 90s. He's, like, a pretty recent character. Mm-hmm. And, like, whatever. He's got red, white, and blue hair. He's got super strength. There's not much to him beyond that. Well, and um, Bullseye gouged out his spine, which is a horrible description. Uh, which happened in the uh, run of Thunderbolts that was happening contemporaneously to this, where it was about a team of supervillains who gets hired by the government to mm-hmm. bring in unregistered heroes. Oh, and Jack Bald Flag Bullseye was a Thunderbolt. Yes, and Jack Flag oh. was one of the heroes who was sent to be brought in by Bullseye, and Bullseye in that takes every opportunity to do uh, extracurricular violence whenever they let him off the chain, kind of uh, proving that this Thunderbolts idea and Civil War in general is a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. And so in those pages, Jack Flagg gets maimed by Bullseye, uh, disappears from that book, and here he is in here in a great little bit of continuity. Yeah. And um, he's got a catchphrase, which is that he just hates cosmic stuff. He hates it. <laughs> he and, does. And that ends up being a great shtick for this character. Another thing that I really think would have been great in the movies, where you have this very grounded, very boring Captain America-style hero. He's got super strength, and he punches bad guys. And now here he is with the Guardians of the Galaxy, and he doesn't know how any of this stuff works. <laughs> he's stuck. Stuck with these colorful characters, and he's just like, I just want to go home. 
I just want to go home. There, yeah. Oh, who? It's a Han. It's like Han Solo. Go back to Star Wars, but there's another character where it's basically just like, I hate all this, all this ridiculous time travel bullshit. Well, uh, so the Prison Forty Two is filled with all sorts of like, like Z-list Marvel villains, like a gorilla with a man's head, and like a guy who's half bison, and an alleged criminal mastermind who has wings for some reason. Yeah, why not? His name was, and, wasn't his name like Cherub or something. Um, I would believe it. I did uh, not. And uh, then you have uh, Skeleton Key K I Condor. <laughs> Condor, Condor. Skeleton Key, G-Man, and Bison. Yeah, it's just like the the most loser villains ever, and they're the ones who... And I just love how in over their heads they are, and at one point, um, Star-Lord is like, I'll call him my team. And when he says the Guardians of the Galaxy, he's just like... At first, he's like, never heard of them, and then when Star-Lord's like, oh, we're from space, he's like, oh, are you saying you guys are too, like, smart and complicated for idiot comic fans to follow? No thanks. (laughs) I just... I like how meta all the Earth characters get with, um getting really aggro about not wanting to care about the Guardians of the Galaxy. I think that's very funny. It is. And Starlord takes all, all all of them out, except Skeleton Key, because Skeleton Key doesn't even try. Uh, <laughs> and then he's like, oh, I'm not going to do anything. And then he lets Blastar into the fortress, because he's a chump. And why not? That's obviously what he would do. Yeah, when well, you just have like a bunch of chump villains in a besieged prison by freaky aliens. Yep. And then we cut, um, cut to our, our Drax and Cam- not Cammy. Drax and Philavel meeting with Mentor. Yeah, so um, I, I continue to like this arc, and now they're uh, seeking out Heather, and they're exploring like a way freakier. It's funny because while the characters in the Star Lord side of things are complaining about how confusing cosmic stuff can get, uh, Drax and Phyla are on like a real cosmic adventure where everything is like abstractions and like. Uh, personifications of ideas again it's like they're in like a very sandman kind of adventure yeah they get well they they get very kirby that's true yeah it's It's all feeding each other yeah it's very interesting uh once we get there but for now it's kind of just mentors a dick and he kills them which what i love how abner and landing are like you know what the solution to this problem is temporarily killing these characters Hey, it helped Drax find those scrolls last arc. <laughs> Temporary death is a very useful tool very in this uh, tool. corner of the galaxies. Um, I find it cute throughout this story how much the other Guardians like immediately realize that they miss Peter. They're really mad for what he did, but then he but then he stormed off because he was embarrassed, and now they're like, we would have talked it out with him. He just ran away like a jerk. Yeah, well, the people who stayed stayed behind. Everyone else, the the ones who left, they made their opinion very clear. But, you know, Rocket was staying by because Rocket was always like, no, I always thought this was a good idea. And I, yeah, I don't and really I, care. I like, he's like, I, I like how uh, altruistically cranky he is, which I, you know, in the movie when he's like, I'm one of the idiots who happens to live in the freaking galaxy. That's like very his attitude here. And I think that's a, yeah. a, a great uh, superhero who's like gruff of the heart of gold. Yeah. All the all the guardians you know the the team parts i love the little details in all the panels uh like bug reading robot models which is <laughs> it's just it's great stuff and something i noticed and i don't i i've 
it wasn't sure if this was true or not because I had a little bit of trouble parsing the art in this way. I couldn't tell if Mantis was playing the Guardians here because that's been established that's very much in her character. Or if Peter was kind of playing Mantis's connection or if like they both kind of knew what was going on and, and did it you know, together. Because Mantis when, very uh, much manipulates the Guardians into going to the prison by making it seem like Peter's the one being fucked up. Um, yeah, although I think uh, I think it was just her being confused because uh, Peter was beating up the psychic. And, and you uh, don't think any of that, you don't think Peter beating up the psychic was to try and help convince everyone to show up because he knew none of them would show up if he was just like, hey, this is what's going on. I don't think he's that smart. Oh, you think he just wanted to beat the guy up? Uh, yeah, I think he just thought it was a good idea to beat the guy up. Okay. I don't know. That, I, that I, felt a little out of character if he wasn't being slightly conniving. I would believe that. I believe Mantis uh, was lying before I believed that Peter was. Oh, yeah. Um, which is why I love her in this. Exactly. Um, I also love the that uh, the ongoing rivalry between Cosmo and uh, Rocket. Mm-hmm. When they show he they show up in the middle of the siege and they have no idea what they're in for and then uh, Rocket's just like ah oh, damn that dog is at it again <laughs> he's got it out for me he's got it out for, he put me in the wrong place um, kind of so. but it, yeah it, it just like a the the final fight is just like a great time mostly for the uh, for the one liners and for the character dynamics but the uh, the guardians end up uh, getting into the prison and bailing Peter out uh, just before things go really pear shaped. Yeah. And then we get some more confrontation of our good friend, uh, whatever it's called, Warlock. Warlock with the Universal Church of Truth Lady who touches the spooky cocoon and it glows purple, which is probably giving us an indication that it's the Magus inside. I don't know. Well... Yeah, like you said, not a lot happens here. But yeah. one thing that um, I did find pretty funny is not for the first time we get them uh, a moment where someone confronts uh, Reed Richards. Yeah, Reed Richards with cosmic stuff, and he just blows them off. He's like, yeah, yeah sure, like... I'll, I'll secure this door. But this cosmic stuff is his jam. He Yeah, it turns out that he's much... It turns out he's just that kind of guy who just much more happens to invent uh, evil super prisons than, like, does his job. Yeah. Reed Richards sucks. Yeah. I mean, Luke Cage is also here to be, to kind of be, like, the same thing. I think that's Luke Cage. I think it's Luke Cage. Wait, no. This is before Luke Cage. Was he part of the New Avengers at this time? Oh, yeah. He was part of the New Avengers. I don't know. That mustache doesn't look very Luke Cage to me. Yeah. Maybe it's just a weird other, like, robot-armed uh, science guy. Cle- um, clearly, there, we have a problem where the Marvel Universe has three black characters that all look the same. Uh, depending on the artist. Yep. Um, anyway, so this part of the story ends with Jack Flagg realizing that his paralysis can be cured in, like, a couple of minutes out here in space. And maybe this cosmic stuff isn't so bad. And he and uh, Peter Quill go to have a drink and discuss his membership as a uh, new guardian of the galaxy. Um, which I thought, I, I just think that this little adventure in the negative zone is a great time. Um, and it's I love anything with Blastar. 
in it. <laughs> no, it was a ton. It's a ton of fun, and we get some nice poking at Civil War and Reed Richards. Like, not, and we you get say the poking, seeding. but it's like a. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a much more um, I feel like it's a real pointed critique where it's uh, picking up the themes that were established in an earlier comic and then uh, you know playing them out in a much more satisfying way yeah. by showing how these stupid ideas that were uh, flippantly presented would like lead to exciting troubling adventures. Yeah, and we get you know our, it, the this that issue ends with you know, seeding the War of Kings and potentially the destruction of the future. But then the last two issues of, or issues 11 and 12 aren't concerned with war of Kings or any of that at all. It's all no, this it's metaphysical, strange hunt through oblivion with Drax and Philovel and our good friend Maelstrom. Yeah. You, so this, uh, you say our good friend Maelstrom, is this your first, uh, First time meeting Maelstrom? Yeah, I don't really know much about him. I I, th- I, th- I think I've met him before, but it, you know we're we're in Marvel Cosmic stuff. We're in abstract representations of the universe that are alive and sentient in some ways, and they're inside of them. So yeah, that. and I I I don't personally find the uh, Marvel version of this to be as much fun as the DC version of this. But these couple of issues are great. Really anchored by uh, that rich emotional uh, Phyla and Drax relationship. Uh, where they both want the same thing and they both really love Heather. And they're yeah. being brought together in this crazy situation. Um, and and the art is markedly different in uh, this arc. But it, uh, it mostly comes down to they have to confront the dragon of the moon. The demon that like a moon dragon is bound with. And like extract her from it. Yeah. I did not recognize this was Wes Craig, even though I should have been reading the credits. Um, yeah. Because I'm more used to his less... Not less realistically looking stuff in Deadly Class, but his art style is so totally different here and there, but you can still recognize... You can find the through lines in the way he does posing, the way he does certain shots, the way he does faces. I think the coloring does him no benefits. The coloring is leaning really heavily into that that quote-unquote realistic paint digital paint style, and it not a fit good fit for his stuff. I think flatter colors is what you want. You're probably right. Yeah, the Drax is like really virulently emerald throughout. Um, yeah, it's the the just the weird shading gradients make it look unnatural and plasticky. The one place where I really uh, do find the colors effective though is so Phyla dives into the the dragon and mm-hmm. um, ends up bringing Heather out and like rescuing her. Yeah, by cutting open the belly and pretty yeah, pretty just like metal. classic yeah, classic saving your girlfriend from a dragon stuff. That's how you do it. Yeah. Um, but in doing so, she gets this like crazy goth makeover, and her costume changes colors and gets all like skull covered and stuff. It gets a real metal makeover. Um, and at some point, Wendell Vaughn showed up to assist in his quantum form. <laughs> his quantum do. light form. Quantum light form. I'm sorry. I I really like the way Craig draws this dragon. By the way, like besides uh, having awesome weird 
cosmic stuff happening at the edges of the panel. It's just so massive, and the characters are so tiny. Yeah, you really feel um, it. But I think the coloring looks cool when Phyla comes out wearing all black and white with the the dark red boots. Mm-hmm. Um the like really video game lighting works in her favor there. It makes the goth look look that much sillier, but in, like a fun way. Yeah. Um, and we start getting this avatar of life, avatar of death talk, and by the end of it, it's heavily implied that Phyla has taken the title of avatar of death now from Thanos. Right. Like she's she's the new being who's meant to battle for killing everybody in the universe or half the universe, and. And a bunch of hints have also been dropped that her eventual opponent is going to be Adam Warlock, who's going to be the new Avatar of Life, and that their destinies are starting to become entwined. Which is kind of spooky and unfortunate, because you don't want to see them fight their friends. I mean, I want to see them fight because I like drama, but... um... But what I like about it is now we're starting to finally see where the threads are going to converge somewhere down the line of all these things that seem pretty isolated so far. Yeah. Exactly. But that's this section of Guardians. Uh, Yeah, so how are you feeling about Guardians in general at this point? I'm enjoying it. I don't know if... Not that that it's... It feels like it's... (laughs) It's constantly being derailed. Uh, At first by Secret Invasion and then by War of Kings, even though it is laying pieces and building towards War of Kings, I I feel like Guardians isn't being allowed to do its own thing. Which is unfortunate because I I am enjoying what we're getting. I like how they establish early on in the second arc that there's not going to just be one team called Guardians of the Galaxy and that's what they are. That's a very malleable idea. As long as Mm -hmm. you've got heroes in space... Their whole tone and vibe is going to be set by the members and how they go about their vague mission of guarding the galaxy. Yeah. And um, I just remembered that I didn't bring this up last time, and I meant to because I talked about it two times ago. But the my original... The, I originally never wanted to read this run of Guardians I because the cover of that first volume bored me to tears. I did not like the art, and I didn't want to read an entire book that looked like that. Now, you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but in comics, the cover is usually done by the artists inside. And that's for the reason why I didn't read Sandman for years, because those Dave McCaig covers terrified me. And I didn't, and I also did not like uh, his work on Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum, which everyone loves, but <laughs> I think is bad. But I also haven't read it in seven to ten years so my tune may have changed but the point being i didn't i these covers they they don't do a lot for me and i think they can be a turn off to other people but once you get reading them they're so much better than what the covers make it seem like that's that's cool to hear because i did not realize uh those covers i'm kind of nostalgic for because i'm nostalgic for this whole era of comics so that's uh interesting to know that that's probably a lot of yeah. people's experiences yours yeah and like brandon peterson most of his covers i i his art looks so plasticky he's i just don't like it it's it's an aesthetic choice that i doesn't click with me and he does a lot of the covers and the, and and what i think he does the cover to the war of kings trade 
Uh, I'm looking at that now, and I'm like, hmm, okay, cool. But, well, whatever the case. We're actually about to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about a completely different art and writing style, although more uh, Cosmic Marvel stuff. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together, we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinbro, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And welcome back. We are talking Secret Invasion in Humans now. But actually, I think before we get into Secret Invasion in Humans, Elias has a terrible surprise. I have a horrible, terrible, horrible surprise. So, last time we mentioned how the war, Secret War... Secret Invasion War of Kings special, which we're going to be talking about after the Secret Invasion uh, in Humans uh, mini, was collected in a trade called Road to War of Kings, and it included X-Men Kingbreaker 1 to 4. And we said, we're just going to skip X-Men Kingbreaker 1 to 4, because it's bad, and we don't need to read it, because it offers literally nothing that, that isn't already you know, talked about in these other books. Well, I remember it being deeply unpleasant from when I read it or when it originally came out. So when I, because I hate myself, I went and read the miniseries anyway after finishing what we had to read. And I'm like, what could possibly be so bad about this? And, you know, it was, I was significantly less appalled than I thought I was going to be. But at the same time, it was not a pleasant read or a pleasant series you get to the end and you're like what was the point of this it's just nothing nothing it's, it's a waste of four issues so uh do you want to really briefly uh remind me the plot because i did not read it on this read through and also just like why you found it to be so repulsive yeah so the basic premise is the star jammers which were a bunch of x-men in space i don't know about that this was what I gathered from context, uh, have been captured by Vulcan, who is one of the Summers brothers, uh, and he is now leading the Shi'ar Empire because reasons. And he's captured Havoc, his brother, and is just torturing them just because he can. And so there are a whole bunch of scenes of torture. Oh, I hit my mic. Sorry. There are a whole bunch of scenes of torture. Uh, and we get some, you know, cosmic diplomacy stuff and it's pretty boring and a lot of people just yelling uh, and everyone's screaming in every panel yeah I remember it being uh, deeply unpleasant torture stuff uh, sexually charged violence just like all of the least pleasant stuff to read with no humanity or insight or anything just like it's like uh, just real dirty unpleasant stuff I I think something worth mentioning Dustin about Weaver that story. Dustin Weaver drew this. <laughs> yeah, Dustin Weaver's the penciler. That's crazy. This this has to be some of his weakest work. Yeah, I just don't. I mean, I guess that's what happens when you give Dustin Weaver a really uh, 
just nasty script he will deliver yeah. something nasty well um yeah it's these a, issues it's a were coming out book but it's not yeah. exactly pleasant to look at or pleasant that, to read uh, well i mean it's decently pleasant but it's just a lot of horrible people fighting other horrible people and horrible things happen and it's not like the level of watchmen horrible well, so I was this, – these issues were coming out when I was in college, and I was getting back into this. This was probably 2008, 2009, and um, there was a book series I was very into in college that I was, like, evangelizing. I was telling all my nerdy friends, you got to read this crazy book series, and that series was called Game of Thrones. <laughs> and I knew that there was a TV show coming out down the pipeline. I think the TV show comes out in 2011. And to me, this comic was capturing a lot of what I liked about Game of Thrones in that uh, – you're seeing a lot of uh, these political machinations and these, these strange fantastical societies, and uh, it. Um, but it also could get very similarly unpleasant. And when it doesn't have anything to say, I just like don't feel like subjecting myself to a bunch of meaningless torture. Yeah, it's. I don't care about any of the characters. You don't leave the end of the series caring about any of them. Yeah horrible stuff happens and at the end horrible stuff happened and it ultimately was a waste which is yeah. also the point of the comic where everyone comments what a waste waste this was i guess we're free but we lost these people I'm like so what was the point the um the main takeaway is that uh vulcan is cyclops's youngest brother and he has taken over the Shi'ar Empire, of which uh, he was an abused slave when he was a child, and, and uh, he has clawed his way to the top with his superpowers. And the Star Jammers are a bunch of uh, pirates, made up now largely of extended members of the Summers family, um, hmm. going through space and on the run from Emperor Vulcan, who wants revenge because he hates his family. He's a very hateful person. Yeah, that's pretty uh, much pretty much what you need to know in fact you don't even need to know most of that to understand i presume what's going to happen in war of kings um i think you get the most important information which is vulcan leads the shiar he hates everyone he wants war and we are, um, he's kind of given the excuse when they come to rescue havoc as well we've been attacked but even there actually the actual excuse happens in secret invasion war of kings We'll talk a lot more about Vulcan when we get to uh, War of Kings proper uh, yeah. in the next episode. But for now, we're going to start with a little bit of prelude by discussing Secret Invasion Inhumans number one to four. Please. Uh, these issues are written by uh, Joe Pekaski, uh, illustrated by Tom Rainey, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Guru FX, and lettered by VC's Corey Petit. I uh, did a little bit of looking up of Joe Pekaski because I actually really like these issues, and I was wondering... Um, like, where is this guy? What's he all about? Well, he, it turns out he's mostly a TV guy. He uh, cut his teeth yep. writing Heroes, which was a popular show around mm -hmm. the time that these comics were coming out. And uh, he went on to do a bunch of Marvel shows. He uh, produced Cloak and Dagger, and mm -hmm. he also did a bunch of uh, Netflix Daredevil. Oh. There you go. I can see um, that. Yeah, he. this has a... I think his writing... I didn't like this as much as you seem to. Uh, but I think that's because I think his writing fits better like a street level hero like Daredevil than this high cosmic, uh, you know, kings and 
big big events and court drama and all that stuff. Yeah, this doesn't come closest to my definitive voice for the Inhumans, but I was realizing rereading this that this was actually the first time these issues were the first issues I'd ever met the Inhumans in. Oh. This is how I, I originally met them in comics, and I think this is, I mean, you'll tell me how you met the Inhumans, but this was, for me, a great introduction. I got a sense of their powers, their dynamics. This was like a great status quo, and even though Black Bolt is missing and they're searching for him for a lot of the uh, the story, mm-hmm. um, and Maximus is, is in charge, you, you will understand completely what everybody's dynamics usually are. And I feel like a problem with Inhumans is whenever they... Uh, relaunch in humans they always relaunch their status quo and they're renouncing monarchy or they're starting a corporation or their city is moving again and i just feel like this is a great standard uh for adelan i I get their world from this Mm -hmm. yeah it's a good i mean they're in a place of transition and that's what this is uh set against the backdrop of you know secret invasion yeah, all of these issues uh, begin with this uh, stained glass framing narrative where uh, we're looking at different, like, inhuman legends on the stained glass, and we just, like, get a little bit of exposition lore, uh, which to me as a new reader was real helpful in getting their vibe as they're kind of like mutants, but they're kind of more like funky, psychedelic outer space. Yeah, and it offers a, a fun framing device that they then play with in, in the subsequent issues in fun ways yeah um i, I hate them so all did, the I'm, just, I'm just gonna put this as a as a, a baseline in this series there's not a single person in that inhumans royal family that i like none of them uh, uh i i kind of like them they're they're not very relatable characters they're much more operatic than that they they feel very theatrical. They feel very like a uh, much more Shakespearean than um yeah. They're all so self-centered. Like they they all they think about are, are themselves, and it it never feels like the. I think one of the theses of this is is supposed to be all about family and coming together as a family. It's about family with the Inhuman Royals because that's what it starts off talking about uh, and I, I don't know if it's trying to reject that notion that you cannot have family lead a nation that it must be in some other way or if family truly is the most important thing and that you're supposed to come together at the end and that's how you get through this and survive uh, but they all suck <laughs> well I guess we'll go um, the, the first the story ever, here the is... first issue is even titled family um, the the story here is pretty simple. It's that um, the secret invasion hits the Inhumans, and they realize that their king or their their former king, Black Bolt, has been replaced by a scroll, and they don't know for how long. And this launches an investigation. Yeah. Um, but le- I I just want to quickly hit on some of the major players in the Inhumans because I like a couple of them. <laughs> um, all right. First of all, we've got the the villain of the Inhumans, Maximus the Mad. Uh, and starting with Maximus, I love Maximus. Maximus is a crazy science Loki. Yeah, okay. I, I guess I was putting Maximus in this category of, of loathsome character, but I felt like he was meant to be loathsome. I didn't feel like the the writer meant for us to dislike most of the royal family, like the heroes in the same way. Maximus, you're meant to be like, okay, what's he scheming this time? What's he going to do? 
Yeah, and again, this is this was where I first met Maximus, and how evil Maximus is is like a like with Loki is like very malleable depending on the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I love this Maximus. He is in charge. He's like seems like he can hold it together enough to like have a conversation, but he might like be lying or I don't know. He's just got this like anarchy energy, like he just don't care, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that for him. He's really mean too. He's just like really bitchy to everybody oh, and yeah. uh, cr- cruel and petty and snipey, but very funny. Just uh, if Tom Hiddleston played Maximus instead of Loki and everything else about that movie was equal, everyone would love Maximus now. <laughs> Probably, um, yeah. I, I think he's really uh, charming. I also like the dynamics between the three cousins, Gorgon, Triton, and Karnak. Now... Mm. This version of Gorgon is, like, really hot-headed. He's kind of written, like, Worf from Star Trek. Um, I One of the most uh, defining actions he takes in this is almost killing Karnak out of uh, suspicion and hot-headedness, which I guess is not very flattering for him. No, not really. Uh, then there's Triton, who's, like, a fish guy. And this comic gives him some cool stuff to do, but Triton, I feel like, is the usually the, the most boring of the entire Inhumans royal family. Yeah, he he mostly is just kind of there to be an extra body. He's, like, tough and gets the job done and doesn't really have a lot of panache. No. Um, But Karnak, I think, comes across as really cool in this. He's another one where I feel like his unlikability is really um, driven by character because his power is he can see the weakness in any person or plan or object or location or theory. So how is um, he able to be defeated? Well, if um, someone catches him by surprise. Yeah, and also we, um... He goes up against with somebody who has the same powers as him. At uh, one point. But he takes that guy out like a chump. He's just like, well, I'm not looking for your weakness. I know what your weakness is. It's a giant hole in the chest. <laughs> um, throws him out a yeah, window. Yeah, but what... A- I like that he implies there that the reason um, he can take out somebody with the same powers like a chump is because his powers are so philosophical that, like, they take years of study. Yeah. You, you can't just download uh, Karnak's mastery. And that's the, the thing, right? Karnak is, like a, like, a really tough love sensei. He's, like, a teacher, but he's not very nice, and um, he's kind of a trickster figure. Like, a, mm-hmm. Karnak's just another where I think his, uh, his douchiness is very justified by his... His whole deal, yeah. his whole setup. He's there to prove everybody is weak mm-hmm. and to force everyone to confront their weaknesses. I can see that. Um, and then we've got Crystal and Medusa. Now, I must admit that um, I only like Crystal ironically. There's this meme on the internet of how Crystal is just like the most vapid Karen and she causes all this drama and she's always like getting engaged and then calling off engagements. And that just if like if you uh, choose to read her as like a Sex in the City protagonist, just like causing chaos everywhere she goes, she's hilarious and amazing. I think I think um, oh, who wrote over at Women Write About Comics, there was there was an entire essay about uh, messy bitch Crystal Macron, and yeah, I think that the, helped uh... shaped my understanding of the character because this I think is the first story I've actually read with Crystal. I'm sure I've read stories with her before, but this is the first time I actually recognized that. Oh, that so that's the person that Johnny Storm fell in love with way back when. And she's got a whole arc in this where um, she steps up and uh, takes responsibility and impresses her sister. I guess, but the entire, but at the end, it's kind of undercut. (laughs) 
Well, yeah, but that's, like, I that's, don't that's classic do crystal. This. Classic crystal undercutting any development she has. Yeah. But yeah, that's just like a. She's like a. I guess I like reading the Inhumans when the tone of the Inhumans is like Real Housewives. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess this this does satisfy that. I I I really won't push back on you that they're unlikable because they're totally unlikable, but like in a way that's spe- kind of spectacular to watch. Uh, because uh, Crystal has paired up with this entire story with her sister Medusa, and I freaking love Medusa in this, actually. I love she's got these gorgeous gowns as much as she's got superhero costumes that all clash with her hair. Um, at the beginning of the comic, she takes Iron Man, like, apart with her super strong hair, and that was cool. That was great. And um, I like that she is very regal and uh, and doesn't give a fuck. She's very, like, uh, reminds me of Emma Frost when they're writing her good. I guess. I think I'm just shaped by more modern interpretations of Medusa. Then when I read her here, I'm like, she doesn't, she, she didn't strike me as, as regal in the same way as just kind of being uncaring versus it's, I guess there's a difference between just being written to not give a shit about other people. Like she's just, just torturing and maiming and murdering and doing whatever the hell she wants. Uh, versus doing that for a purpose. Again, like, I never felt like there was an underlying purpose established, even though they talked about there being an underlying purpose of, well, I'm doing this to get information so that I can save Black Bolt. I don't I don't think I, I don't think Pekaski did a good enough job of selling the characters outside of these like outside of the I, I guess the the archetypes they're supposed to be uh, but I, I where I like that is in that fantasy thing where like um the tragedy of seeing Tyrion using more ruthless uh, tactics than he would have because of the uh, high stakes of the war or something mm-hmm. that's kind of the a tone that I like for inhumans where um they're they're really challenged to be these uh, ruthless sort of people mm-hmm um, although, um, I felt like that didn't, um, I, I'm a little bit talking about stuff that, that hasn't happened yet. So I, yeah, I should hold back. I, I think that Where... might also be shaping your, your view of this because the, uh, there is a clash between there, if there, if there is going to be that tension, it's, it does, it's not really here. Like, I don't see it as they're doing something and it, it's a going against kind of what they're, they want to be doing or, like, what they think sh- they should be doing and all that. Um, it just feels like this is what we do because this is how we do it. And it's kind of like the – it's more co- coherent and cohesive than, like, the Super Scroll Mini. But I've, I'm getting a lot of the same kind of feelings about the characters here than there without the sudden shifting, uh, you know, what's his face? The, that asshole with the betrayer, the child. Um, I can only think of Scarlet Witch when I hear the betrayer now, thanks to Mr. Jonathan Hickman. <laughs> the betrayer. Um, but like, cause we get a, this one part in like part two where Crystal, Crystal of all people is, is like, Medusa, what are you doing? Like that, I'm like that doesn't strike me as something that this character would be, would be all up in arms about, and Medusa that, doesn't seem all that conflicted about having to do any of this torturing, even if it's like trying to put on a brave face or 
so motivated to to save Black Bolt because she's been she felt betrayed by all the scrolls. I I don't think that they dug into that enough because they were too concerned with the what versus the why. Yeah, because now I'm thinking of moments that are going to happen later down that are going to inform some of these motivations a little bit better. Yeah. The one most important thing that gets set up is that um, the Medusa brokers a truce between the Inhumans and the Kree, who originally created uh, their people, uh, but then lost and forgot about them. Um, and there's always tensions between the Kree and Inhumans, mm-hmm. but now Medusa's trying to smooth those over by offering Crystal to marry Ronan the Accuser. Which is a big deal. Yeah. And Chris is like, no, I don't want to do it. As you do. Uh, and Medusa is like, too bad, so sad you're doing it. Yeah. And um, I like how it's like a classic Disney princess conflict where Medusa is very cavalier about arranged marriages. And Crystal's like, no way. And now they have kind of like a culture clash about this. Mm-hmm. Um, where and by the end of it, Crystal seems um, Crystal and Medusa settle their differences wearing fur bikinis in trial by combat. As you uh, do, as you do with uh, when they join the commune of Thundra and the Femizons. And this is where I'm forced to admit I love Thundra and the Femizons. <laughs> they're they're Hulk characters. Um, they're from like an alternate universe where Thundra rules. I don't quite remember what was going on in their status quo that they live in a commune for some reason, but like, sure, man. I had Thundra in the uh, Avengers Facebook game that was out in 2012, and she was great. Just, uh, Thundra is like a weird uh, character that I love She when she shows up. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah, Crystal... Uh, eventually concedes that she's going to get married, um, but somewhat reluctantly. And we're going to talk about that a lot more next time. But uh, while this is all going, Black Bolt is also withstanding a torturous study uh, as a scroll captive. Yeah, uh, with and a scroll who was his son. His son Ahura, yeah. Um, and, and that leads to just this beautiful panel of him screaming, or not screaming, like looking devastated. It's near near the end of issue two. It's hilarious. I I think I spent ten minutes just laughing at it. At Black Bolt? Yeah, at Black Bolt. It, it completely destroyed any tension in that scene, um, which is unfortunate because it should have been like this this emotional, sad scene, but instead I'm just like, what's with his face? I think it's on page, it's like, like page 20. Um, it's right after they brought his son in and he's on the torture wheel and the evil scientist guy, because you've always got to have an evil scientist guy. It's like, I just need you to show me emotion. Lose control. For starters, think of the things I will do to your boy to provoke you. And then on the next page, it's just this huge panel of him being like, ah! His eyes are bulging, and it's hilarious. Um, I'm sorry. No, I love a silent Black Bolt emoting. My fan cast for Black Bolt was always Keanu Reeves. I just thought it would be amazing to see Keanu Reeves just silently, like, doing insane faces to convey stuff. I thought that would be a total cool acting challenge for him. Um, At the end, when they're finally making their mistake, Black Bolt uh, whispers in the uh, mad scientist's ear, just, like, exploding his entire head and upper body. And yeah. uh, this, to me, is like a definitive Black Bolt moment, that Black Bolt is vengeful, Black Bolt is violent, Black Bolt is restrained and controlled, um, and Black Bolt will, like, blow you up if you uh, cross him like this. Yeah. 
But before we get to that, uh, and after Medusa has brokered her, her deal with the the Kree, they Karnak is like there are three there, there are three weaknesses in the shields around somewhere or where, where Black Bolts is being held, and so they need to go on their their own special fetch quests. So you've, that's where we get Thundra, uh, and then to Rigel three, which I can't remember exactly where we saw Rigel three last. But I Rigel's like... been showing up here and there. I yeah. think the last place we saw it was they were helping Blake the, break the blockade at the end of Conquest. That's what it was. Okay, and then Triton is sent to I don't know some some a Pelagia, some water planet where he re- meets... It's a water planet. There's there's other fish. There's fish babes there. He's yep. like, oh no, oh no, I'm a sexy fish, and you're a sexy fish. And then he has to escape. What's up with that? And I mean the the whole escape. You think they're all they've all failed. And everything's going to be bad. And then the last issue, everyone turns it around because, of course, they do. Because they are just that awesome. And before I get too far, I just remember the covers are all by uh, Sejic. Uh, that, explained, Sejic. That, that explains a lot. It really got his vibe. Yeah. Oof. And I, I, think, I think I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know. Hopefully I got it right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stepan Sejic is always how I've said it. Okay. I'm happy to be corrected if I ever meet the man, yeah. which I hope to do one day because he's really cool. I love his art. Yeah, he's very cool. He's going to be getting um, uh, some, a new book from Image, but this is Marvel. <laughs> Back to Marvel. But, well, um, the only the last thing I, I wanted to say about this is just um, where I really like the artwork is when Black Bolt and Medusa are reunited at the very end. Yeah. Uh, Black Bolt's, like, mask and helmet are all, like, burned off, so it's just his face. And he's just, like, the most boring-looking guy when he's not wearing that crazy getup. Yeah, he looks just... so... Just... Average. He's average Joe Schmo. He looks like pretty, Peter Parker. Pretty Joe Schmo, but... Just, like, um, he looks like somebody drew Peter Parker. If that's, I can't tell a difference. He's got, like, dark brown hair and, like, a kind of squarish face. Mm-hmm. Um... But what I really like is when he sees Medusa, the two of them, after being so intense and doing all this violence and being so regal and closed off, just have this, like, really drop-the-whole-facade look at each other, and they both just look, like, so sad and vulnerable. And I guess that's the reason why I I think Keanu Reeves when I think Black Bolt is because uh, he's so closed off and, uh, and, like, impossible to know, but every so often he has these, like, profound moments of vulnerability that make me understand like the humanity of this character who is like titularly titularly inhuman. Mhm. And it's a great moment too when cuz he doesn't say anything. And at first I'm like but how are they going to resolve this? And I'm like him not saying anything is the resolution. If it was a fake, the person might have spoken. <laughs> right. A, a, a bad fake. But yes. Yeah. So that was a good that that was a good good little moment that you know you don't expect it to be the way it is but that's how it has to be. So they finally rescued Black Bolt. Uh, we had also found out that this was a little earlier. Black Bolt had been replaced so early on that like I don't know Medusa had been sleeping with this fake for months, which has yeah, got to do a I... number on her. Yeah, which they, they don't really explore. No, they don't. Or maybe fortunately. And that's what I mean. I'm like, they don't really explore a lot of the 
the ideas of this and I mean Secret Invasion rarely explored any of these ideas in decent ways but at the end we we get a, a new declaration from all of the, the Inhuman Royal Family basically being like well Maximus is no longer in charge also we are becoming we are getting rid of the Monroe Doctrine and becoming uh, aggressive now and so they go and they end the series. That's that's it. They basically are like, we're going to do this. And then we get a final stained glass thing uh, where they're going to go and fuck up some scrolls. Um, yeah, yep. but uh, ah. they continues on. We, I mean, we immediately check in with the Inhumans, whose status quo does not remain the same for long. No. In Secret Invasion War of Kings number one. Uh, this comic is written... Again, by Dan Abnan and Andy Lanning, with art by Paul Pelletier and Bong Dezo. Uh, inked by Rick Magyar and Joe Pimentel. Colored by Will Quintana and Mike Kelleher. And lettered by VCs Joe Caramanga. And you know, Elias, when there's one issue with that many creators, that's just a... It's a recipe for something. A recipe for something. Although this issue uh, this issue isn't a disaster by any means. I shouldn't be uh, speaking out of turn. No, it... it... It does what it means needs to do. I don't know why it necessarily needed to exist. Unlike, like, Annihilation Conquest Prologue, it feels less... It feels like it could have just... It's the end of the Secret Invasion in Humans series with, like, a little bit of a tease elsewhere. It doesn't feel out of... I guess the only reason they separated it out was to get other people who weren't reading the Inhuman series into it. But otherwise, it's literally the epilogue to that series. Yeah, but with one pretty significant new development, which is the new status quo for Black Bolt. Well, yeah. Um, also, before I forget, he had been missing since the end of World War Hulk. Or, or he, so, yeah. since before the end of World War Hulk. Um, that's where he had been replaced before that. This is the kind of thing that if the comic had any interest in exploring that, I would be really interested for that, but, like, they don't. No, they don't. They're just like, it's a good thing that when he died during World War Hulk, he didn't transform. I'm like, he died? <laughs> what? Um, the part that interests me of uh, the end of the story and uh, the one-shot is that we're really picking up now on the political situation in Ronin's Kree Empire after the Annihilation War and the Conquest War. Yes. And it just turns out that, like, they used all their resources. The Kree are just have been, like, blown to hell twice now, um, worse than anyone else. In the, like, And this once mighty empire is just, like, at the precipice of falling apart. And the Skrulls lost their throne world, and they just, like, threw all their resources into this failed secret invasion. Just the uh, the political situation has never been more unstable. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the moment that I've cared most about the Marvel cosmic political situation in the galaxy. Is like I really get how all the comics we've been reading up until now cause this the the Kree imperial stability and the Skrull imperial stability. Like, and I I get now why what happens happens. Mm-hmm. It's and you it's good setup. do you want to walk us through? Uh, yeah, uh, Black Bolt's big. Uh, big thing. So it starts with we, we open kind of on the scrolls just getting blown to bits and then we cut back to well how did we get there 16 hours earlier and we're on the moon 
And I think this is where Crystal Macron is like, yeah, no, I was never going to marry Ronan. Fuck that. So I feel like Abner and Lanning have a much better grasp on who Crystal is than uh, <laughs> than Bukowski. Fair. Uh, I think that's why I the entire I kept thinking this was part of the miniseries. <laughs> the entire time we were talking about it. I'm like, oh yeah, that this stuff happens at the end of the the fourth issue. No, it happens here. Uh, Black Bolt is kind of frowning. Maximus is doing his best to talk in every single panel because that's what he does. If Black Bolt is restrained, Maximus is verbose, and they're they're uh, wandering through the ship, going into the secret doors, and going into where the secret doors lead to more secret doors. And Maximus is like. Are we really going to be doing this? I made this machine, and you said it was too dangerous. And he's clearly. But this is that Loki stuff that I love. Life, right? This is the Loki stuff where he's just like, really? Yeah. Now you want to be a good brother to me? All I ever do is try to kill you. I guess. Lolol. And you're just like, oh, Maximus never change. Yep. And so they blast off their city, which is actually also a spaceship from the moon. That's right. They were living on the moon. Uh, which I I love that blast off sequence. Um, very dramatic, good framing, uh, well drawn. The machines are really like freaky and baroque looking. Yeah, and apparently they have powered this ship via Black Bolt's speech, so they can now fly through space at incredible speeds with these giant lasers, just by Black Bolt like whispering, because that's what uh, he does. which. And that shows the power of what happens when Maximus and Black Bolt set aside their differences and work together. Because Maximus is like a mad scientist inventor, and Black Bolt has this like cosmic powered voice. And if they just like let each other in, they can uh, rule really well. It turns out. Yeah, and when they also do that, uh, bad things start to happen because because Black Bolt no longer cares, and he's no longer worried about any sort of you know making diplomacy or even like acknowledging other ships or whatever he blows away a bunch of shiar ships in his pursuit of this scroll ship because they've entered shiar space uh and that's gonna come back to bite him in the butt as we'll see at the end of this issue uh but then we find out that someone something is heading towards the kree homeworld but it turns out it's just uh, Black Bolt and everyone, and they teleport onto the onto Hala, and Maximus is cackling and having fun, and they just obliterate people. They teleport beneath the shield because Lockjaw is all powerful and the best boy. <laughs> and uh, Ronan is is like, this is amazing, terrible, but amazing. And... Yeah, because according to Ronan's beliefs, the Inhumans are supposed to be like uh, tools. They're supposed to be property of the Kree, um, and but but they were but like treasured property. Mm-hmm. And now seeing them at all the height of their powers is like culturally weird for Ronan, uh, which inspires him to make a very drastic uh, change from his feelings of the miniseries. Yeah, and he's also he he basically says, "I never really wanted to lead." I think is true like he he kind of fell into it and he's like I'm the best person for this job whether or not that's true or not is a different question 
but he felt that way. And he's like, I'm going to lead until we get something stable. But he's always thought that the Supreme Intelligence should be the leader and that he is the hammer. He is the he is the justice of the, the blunt instrument. He is not the one making the rules. He just enforces them. Deadly enforcement, but enforcement. And so when the Kree come, not the Kree, when the Inhumans come by and are just like, we can blow all this up. Uh, we are, we we need to, to join join together, you and I. And he's like, she said, she's, uh, Medusa's like, two words, Ronan. And I expected them to be, I surrender. But no, instead he bows and says, my lord. And so, and and with that, he establishes Black Bolt as one of the kings from the upcoming War of Kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ronan a second ago was like leading his people, but he realized that uh, for a bunch of reasons, a lot of them symbolic, that maybe Black Bolt, who's like a really accomplished monarch, could be the king, his king, the king of his people. Mm-hmm. And that's just like really shocking and sudden, and I'm and like a delicious development. I can't wait to see. And where it goes. It's great. I love that stuff. Yeah. And then, um, as you implied, in the epilogue, we see Vulcan. We see him in, like, Roman alien regalia. And we see that he is ready. Um, he's just like, oh, a new king? Great. I should go to war with that because that's what I'm all about doing. <laughs> um, leaving us with perfect setup for War of Kings. Um, going into War of Kings, Elias, do you have any... Um, predictions hopes fears um i don't know honestly i think war of kings is going to be one of the more complicated events for me i think just because everything else well firmly within the wheelhouse of things that i really enjoy and the kind of space operatic stuff that un I could just drop in and, and have fun with. But now we're going to be entering into the kind of like Game of Thrones stuff that while I do love me some political intrigue, uh, I have no idea if I'm going to even like what what I'm going to think of this going in or, or leaving it. I have I don't yeah. really like this era's Black Bolt. I don't really like Maximus. We'll see. We'll see what we'll see. I, this, I'm curious to find out. Been, yeah. Especially because um, while those are definitely main characters in this, we're not going to abandon the Guardians. We're not going to abandon Nova. We're going to pick up with your main boy, uh, Darkhawk. So, like, Dark. we're going to be seeing um, this war from the pers- not just from the perspective of the Kings, who are all pretty unlikable. Yeah. yeah. Um, war of Kings has so always for- been something that I've heard about, but never really knew much, like, what it was. It's always been something that's been on the periphery of, of my knowledge. I bet that's true for a lot of people because this, yeah, this is when the Guardians books really started to catch on with comics readers. Mm. Um, so next time we're going to be starting War of Kings proper, but this is where the reading is going to get a little bit complicated. Oh yeah. So um, we're going to be reading uh, this in a more chronologically than we have been reading in the past. 
I am not going to start listing issue numbers uh, in a particular order here on the air because I got a feeling if you're listening to this while you're doing something or while you're driving, it's going to be very unhelpful. I'm going to save the issue numbers and we're definitely and we're going to post them in the order that we're hoping to read them. Um, and you can go off of that. You can also like, uh, as always with reading orders, I don't think we're too picky or too strict. This is just a we decided to get like more intense about this because this is a crossover with so many moving parts. But yep. the uh, issues that we are reading for next time are um, War of Kings Darkhawk, number one and two, which is a, a two-part miniseries, um, Nova, number 23 to 25, War of Kings the main series, number one to three, War of Kings Warriors, numbers one and two, and War of Kings Ascension, numbers one and two. We'll uh, post the proper order for that. Um, We're also going to be reading ju- Guardians of the Galaxy, number 13. Just kind of sandwiched in the middle of there, very awkwardly. <laughs> uh, and War of Kings Savage Sword of Scar, maybe? Maybe? That seems like one um, of the ones that could be skipped. That can definitely be skipped like Kingmaker could have been skipped. Uh, it's got almost nothing to do with War of Kings. Uh, it's like a check-in with some stuff from World War Hulk, Planet uh, Hulk stuff. Um, and... Uh, and if you read it, you will get an insight into a completely different Marvel story that was happening around the same time. <laughs> okay, then. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But in the meantime, Elias, if people want to find you for your Marvel cosmic or other uh, unrelated opinions, where might one find something like that? Uh, they could find me on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Uh, that is my king name. I guess that would make it Quetzalish the first. Uh, and you can also find me writing at multiversitycomics.com, where I am in the midst, in the midst of uh, my Babylon Five reviews and uh, some Demon Slayer, some some little 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 comic series called Demon Slayer. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if anyone's heard of it, uh, but that's about it. And where can they find you, Jake? On the larger interwebs. Uh, I can be found on uh, twitter.com at rambling underscore moose. You can also find me on multiversitycomics.com where I often talk about X-Men and I will be in the midst of reviewing Attack on Titan, the final season, okay. uh, which I believe is going to get pretty spicy, so you don't want to miss it. All right. And, and until that's all then, me, folks. I wish everyone who's reading this good luck where you can find the issues, find the trades... Cause it's a it's a sprawling one. We believe in you. See you there. Excelsior.